an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Okay, thank you very much for coming. Um, I was asked to do this presentation in the wake of everything that's uh, been in the news that you're well aware of. Um, I'm going to focus on three things. One is to very unfairly in one half hour, um, it just came to mind trying to limit me to one half hours like trying to stop the tsunami. The, um, I'm going to try to do three things. One is to give you a very unfair quick introduction to the, to the construction and design of uh, the BWR type of reactor that's at uh, Fukushima. The next is to talk briefly about the radiological conditions. And third is to dispel some myths surrounding both the comparisons of uh, Fukushima to Chernobyl, which are spurious, and uh, uh, to dispel some myths about Chernobyl itself. Um, as you, some of you may know, the 25th anniversary of that accident is coming up on the 26th of April. And uh, interestingly, a week, week and a half ago, there was the uh, uh, 32nd anniversary of the Three Mile Island accident in uh, near Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Okay, so this is just a quick, you know, if anyone's interested in numbers, the six operating reactors, or used to be operating reactors at uh, Fukushima. Um, here's a picture of the plant from above. Um, you can see units, uh, actually, I'm going to zoom in right now and then give you the uh, labels. These are units one, two, three, and four, the ones that we're most concerned with. And these buildings below them, and east is downward, by the way. Um, the buildings below them house the, what are called the turbine generators, the ones that eventually feed electricity into the grid. Okay. Uh, one quick thing I wanted to show you, um, if you go down the Ohio River or up the Ohio River, you're going to see something like this. This is a quick schematic of a coal-burning uh, plant. Um, what the differences between uh, nuclear reactors and uh, these kind of plants is that there is no exhaust stack. There is no uh, feed and granulation system for the uh, um, for the coal, and this part, this island, is replaced by a nuclear island. Okay. Um, and here it is briefly. What you have is a reactor uh, encased in a six, or depending on what type of reactor, eight inch thick uh, pressure vessel with the fuel inside, the cooling water inside, and the control rods and various detectors and such. And then you have that water boiling, going, going to the, the turbine, which turns the generator, produces electricity. The uh, water condenses, um, is released to the environment, and uh, not the water from the, from the coolant loop, but uh, from the heat exchanger itself, the condenser, and goes back, back on its merry way. Okay, this is a cutaway of uh, basically what you find at uh, Fukushima, a boiling water reactor, a BWR. Um, and I'm going to go through uh, quickly the more salient features of this. Starting from the top, you have what's, what they call a secondary containment building. It's actually more appropriately called a confinement building. That building was never meant to withstand pressure uh, waves of the type that were experienced by the hydrogen explo uh, explosions. The second thing is the high bay area. 
okay, where a lot of equipment is stored, lots of operations happen, primarily dedicated to refueling the uh, reactor and to storing uh, spent fuel, and the spent fuel pool is right here where the number five is. You then have a steel containment vessel completely surrounding um, this whole reactor cut, th uh, this whole steel thing is a complete enclosure, including this lower safety system that I'll talk about in a minute. You have the reactor pressure vessel itself, nominally six inches thick of steel. Um, the operating pressure of one of these is around 65 atmospheres. Okay. Um, you then have the what's called the primary containment structure, anywhere from two feet to um, down lower, even uh, thicker, two meters, even three meters, I believe, the base mat of reinforced concrete. And then finally, the, the pressure suppression torus. What this is is a system that is used in the case of uh, a release of steam to not overpressurize even this part this skin, if you will, to force it down into the torus where there's water. It bubbles, the, the steam would bubble up through the water. That's the idea, condensing, cooling, and taking the pressure off the system. Okay. This is a cutaway view that gives you a better indication of what happened at uh, Fukushima. If you remember from some of the photographs, and I'll flash those in a minute, the upper high bay areas but also some below. Uh, uh, the destruction occurred primarily in the uh, upper bay, uh, upper high bay areas where the roof and the sides were, were blown uh, off by a hydrogen explosion. Okay. Um, here's another cross section. You can see the size of the torus by this man standing right here. Here's a before of reactor one, reactor building one, and an after. The high bay areas were blown out uh, by, by the hydrogen explosion. I'm not going to get into the, And by the way, I apologize. I prepared this longer uh, presentation. I'm going to be flipping through pictures that aren't immediately pertinent to this. So the details of the reactor aren't important. This is a picture um, sometime after uh, the accident took place and when things began to stabilize, you see east is in that direction. You see starting from the south, units four, three, two, and one. Okay, and one through three, one, three, and four are the ones that are uh, damaged. Units five and six are further to the north. They appear to be fine. Okay, here's another picture. Um, and units, uh, probably unit two took the biggest hit with the, uh, with the hydrogen detonation inside. And this is one final picture. Um, I think this is unit four. Um, what I find interesting is almost exactly this type of uh, concrete. In this case, it was a water pumping system. But in Chernobyl, it was a concrete pumping system um, that was used. Um, OK, radiological conditions. Just to give you some numbers, because the, the press has not been doing too well with its numbers. Um, monitoring sites at greater than 20 kilometers from the site, from the accident site, uh, report low levels, and according to the World Health Organization, does not pose a risk to public health. The numbers are, most of the sites report uh, approximately 10 microsieverts per hour, which I, I understand that the units and the numbers don't immediately mean anything to you, but for comparison, you get 30 microsieverts in one, uh, let's say, crossing of the Atlantic. 
Okay. Uh, actually, it's more if you cross the Atlantic, just a, an average international flight. Um, typical chest x-rays, you can receive anywhere from 100 to 200 microsieverts. Sleeping with your spouse, you get, because we contain potassium-32 and other uh, radioactive isotopes, you get a small dose. Um, and finally, the typical background radiation is about six microsieverts uh, per hour at the highest loca at, at the places where that have the highest uh, that highest natural background dose rate. In other words, if you're living, let's say, in the Andes or something, uh, you're, you may get up to six microsieverts per hour compared to what was it? An average of ten at twenty kilometers away from the plant. Okay. Um, in terms of uh, actual contamination, not irradiation, on March 19th, there were traces of iodine-131 and cesium-137 located near, uh, in the prefectures near to the, near to the plant. The Japanese Ministry of Education, Culture, Sports, and Science cautioned that these levels do not affect human health, even if they're ingested. Okay. Um, the levels uh, of iodine-131 detected uh, did exceed normal limits, and, uh, and I'd like you to pay attention, did exceed normal limits set by law. Okay, but those limits are already quite low. Um, the ministry concluded that the levels measured posed no immediate threat to health. Okay, these are all quoted statements from, from the ministry and from others. In the United States, we have statements from the U.S. Uh, Environmental Protection Agency and the Department of Energy. The United States government has extensive network of radiation monitors throughout the country. We definitely do. And no radiation levels of concern have been detected, unquote. Um, and here's the numbers for comparison. Um, there was a small amount of, ze uh, of an isotope called xenon-133 detected in California and Washington. Its dose rate is approximately one, quote, one millionth of the dose rate that a person normally receives from background radiation. In other words, it was inconsequential. Okay. F and finally, those are levels far below uh, those from atmospheric testing of nuclear weapons that were conducted and uh, the Chernobyl accident. Okay, now I'm going to only spend uh, hopefully a brief amount of time on the sensationalism that's been going on, unfortunately by some people who deem themselves to be experts. One of the things that recently appeared in the news uh, was a kind of ridiculous, I, I thought, in fact repugnant, um, they were showing pictures of fish that were dead, and it's absolutely not clear whether those fish, in fact, I would argue most likely this was a, this was a contrived thing, of dead fish, and it was labeled nuclear sushi. Now, if the West is more concerned about its nuclear sushi than, than it is about the people, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of peoples that have suffered uh, in Japan from the, the, uh, from the uh, earthquake and tsunami, then we need to rethink our priorities. I'm sorry, but it's, it's it's that ridiculous, some of the things that have been said. Uh, Michio Kaku, a theoretical, uh, a theoretical physicist who works on string theory, he's not a nuclear engineer, okay, has said some really sensationalist things, and some of the, those things have been wrong. He doesn't understand the construction of the Chernobyl uh, reactor, saying that the reactor pressure vessel, for example, and the upper parts of the building were blown off simultaneously. The, the RBMK, the Chernobyl-type reactor, has no reactor pressure vessel. That's what exacerbated the accident, one of the things that exacerbated uh, the accident in the first place. There's no China, he was using uh, words uh, like China syndrome. Chernobyl had a f full meltdown, full and complete meltdown. 
Okay, it flowed into the lower portions of the building, and I'll show you some pictures from that later. Um, and uh, demonstrated quite clearly that even theoretically, a China syndrome is impossible. It did very little damage to the lower parts of the building. Okay, um, uh, Kaku was saying that the spent fuel pond could explode, which is nonsense. Um, uh, reaching temperature limits that can be tolerated, which is also nonsense because the temperature readings that I saw coming out were something on the order of 500 degrees or whatever. Now, there's nuances to that. It's not clear exactly what they're, re what they're referring to. Um, that'll take some time. But just to give you an indication, the cladding, the, the thin cladding skin around the, uh, um, uh, there's a, uh, the uranium oxide fuel pellets begins to uh, substantially degrade and fail at 2,200 degrees. Uranium oxide fuel melts at 5,000 degrees. Okay, so it's, it's a vastly different uh, thing that shouldn't be speculated on. Congressman Ed Markey uh, from Massachusetts warned that another Chernobyl was coming and he predicted that the same thing could happen here. Absolutely preposterous. Not only is that an ignorant statement, but it's a statement that incites panic. And worst, I think, is that he used, he used that situation to then try to call uh, a stop to licensing procedures for a new, safer reactor, which is, I mean, I find that repugnant. Okay. There were outright uh, radiological hoaxes. I'll show you a picture of that in a second. And uh, what I'd like you um, to kind of focus on right here is that there was a video um, several days after the accident. My wife actually brought my attention to it, where a Japanese woman w was being scanned by a radiological, Japanese radiological worker in that area, just making sure that everything was okay. The woman, before she came up to the man, bowed very gently and then went up. Now compare her reaction to the, some of the hysteria that's going on in this country, including in California, in Finland, outside our country, um, even in Wheeling, I heard on the news that people were making runs on potassium iodide tablets. Okay, it's not a reflection of circumspection or introspection or calmness. Okay, and one final thing about Michio Kaku, he suggested quite recklessly um, that uh, material, that, that the Japanese exercise what's called the Chernobyl option with helicopters. In fact, if that had happened, very well it might have damaged the very structures that I pointed out that were, that were designed to contain uh, what's inside. Okay, here's the hoax. After 10 days, that kind of a radiation cloud was supposed to reach the United States at 750 rads. That is above what's called the LD50, uh, the lethal dose 50% um, value uh, for human beings. In other words, uh, at around 600 rad, I think it's 650, um, half the population, if exposed to that, would, be, uh, would die. Okay, uh, this is preposterous absolutely preposterous. It came out, someone uh, distributed it over the internet um, uh, and claimed that the, that the Australian Radiological Authority had generated this. It was absolute nonsense. Okay, spurious comparisons to Chernobyl. Causes, that's the first thing. I'll start with Fukushima. Fukushima was caused, or the precursor was the earthquake. The cause was the tsunami. Those reactor are, the reactors are designed very well 
to withstand uh, earthquakes. Um, there were other nuclear reactors uh, in that area, or at least not too far away from that area, who shut down. Units 5 and 6 on site shut down. The problem at, at, um, at uh, Fukushima was that the tsunami, the waves from the tsunami, um, damaged, uh, in, some, in some cases destroyed, some of the external equipment, they're called emergency backup diesel generators or other kind of uh, equipment, outside the reactor building, which precluded their ability to cool the core. That's, that's what uh, caused it. In other words, it's a natural cause. Chernobyl was very different. It was a man-made set of causes. First, ironically, they were running a safety experiment at Chernobyl. On the electrical engineering side, they had conducted this uh, safety experiment at least three times previously at other RBMK sites at the Smolensk and Leningrad uh, site. Um, so, in other words, there was kind of a lax, oh, we're just doing an experiment kind of thing. It should be fine. May Day holidays were just, uh, just a few days away. In the former Soviet Union, the May Day holidays were a major, major holiday on the, on the order of July 4th for us. There were external pressures, both to complete the experiment and to produce more power in order, why? To get bonuses. Okay. Um, so... Um, that was permitted to interfere in the operation of the, uh, uh, of the reactor at Chernobyl, Unit 4. The low safety culture in general, Mr. Alexandrov, the founder and pr the promoter and the main designer of the RBMK Chernobyl-type reactors, uh, made a very reckless statement saying that accidents are impossible. If your safety culture begins from that point, you will crash and burn because you will have lowered your, your guard. If you begin from the perspective of, um, if you begin from the perspective of uh, things break, you mitigate for those or you build around them, you design around them, you're in a much better uh, position. And that's reflected exactly in the, difference, uh, of the, uh, exactly in the differences of the design. No reactor uh, containment building. No reactor pressure vessel. 2,000 tons of graphite that burns at those kind of conditions. All at Chernobyl. None of which is true for Western light water reactors. Uh, the, other thing, the other thing about safety culture is that the Soviet, former Soviet Union, uh, because, of, because of its political structure, was a very proscriptive society. What was said from on high had to be done. I'm exaggerating a little bit, of course. I'm not trying to paint the people as being robots. They weren't. They were very smart. But the institutional pressure was from external, you will be safe and you will do this and this and this. So naturally, people will react, yes, sir, and they will do exactly that, that, and that. The practice in the West is the opposite. The practices in the West is that you have to demonstrate that you're doing safety. In other words, you internalize the safety and then you build for it. And that psychological difference also added to the, uh, to the accident. Um, finally, the operators themselves overrode seven times interlocks. There's, there's reasons why they did this, uh, primarily to drive the experiment forward. Interlocks, and they violated safety procedures for a de reactor design that was in itself unforgiving with multiple uh, design flaws. Okay. Um, here are some of the differences. I'm not going to, you know, obviously, I'm not going to spend, uh, torture you guys by reading most of this. I'll just c concentrate on the red letters. No reactor pressure vessel. 
Instead, you had 1,693 individual pressure tubes running through 2,000 tons of graphite. Uh, the Western light water reactors are water-cooled and water-moderated, and they are inherently, which means not by human systems, which inevitably fail, but inherently, because of the physics, have a negative feedback. In other words, if um, water begins to boil too much in a Western light water reactor, something called poisoning happens. The reactivity goes down. The poisoning, uh, the reactor is poisoned. It can't continue. Okay. In contrast, an RBMK reactor, because it's water-cooled graphite moderated, has the opposite. In fact, in certain ranges, power ranges, um, they have something that was called a, uh, uh, it's called a positive void coefficient. If the reactor boil, if the water in the reactor boils, you actually enhance the reaction. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand that you'd want the latter, not the former. I, I should say the other way around. You, you don't want the former. You don't want the Chernobyl. Uh, uh, I'm mixed up now. You don't want, obviously, a positive feedback from Chernobyl. You do want a negative inherent feedback from, from like what we have in Western reactors. Ironically, even the control rod design was flawed. I can't get into the technical details, but unfortunately what happened was when they pressed the button to begin the, the accident, when the control rods, actually the bottom of the control rods, started entering the core, which was already unstable, it enhanced the reaction. Okay. Um, and finally, what I said before, there's no containment structure or building. The Russian Federation currently operates 11 of these reactors, one under construction. They have done safety improvements, but I can assure you these type of reactors would never be um, licensed in the West. Okay. Um, this is Chernobyl, or what was Chernobyl. Um, just to give you an idea of the size, how much time do I have? Okay, good. Um, just to give you an idea of the size, the uh, green, how appropriate. The, um, uh, that level that I'm pointing to is about 70 and a half meters, which is three quarters of a football. Like, Okay, that's how tall the building is. The vent stack goes, goes further up. The vent stack, the ventilation stack is not an exhaust stack. It's just general industrial, uh, for industrial processes. Um, the reactor itself is way down in there. Okay, now, this was not a nuclear explosion. This was an explosion caused by steam flashing from 65 atmospheres to ambient in, you know, fractions of a second. That's why approximately 30 meters of the building was obliterated and much more damage was done, including to the turbine generator hall. Um, uh, large debris was scattered up to about uh, 150 meters away from that reactor. Um, let me just quickly go through. I wanted to show you, just for comparisons, the... Um, uh, the RBMK reactor. What you have here is the, reac the reactor core, and you can see the bricks, which are the, the graphite stack, through which um, uh, coolant flows from below through here, gets, begins to boil. There's, uh, it gets sent to what are called steam separation drums. They separate the steam from the water. The water goes down, is cooled in a condenser, gets pumped back by these pumps to distribution headers, and begins its journey again. These, uh, these, the steam from th these guys goes off and uh, powers the turbines. Now, the size is remarkable. The approximately 40 
Fukushima cores, and I'm limiting myself to the core, can be contained in a Chernobyl type of reactor. Okay, there's, there's reasons why that also is a difficulty. Um, um, now, I wanted to draw your attention to a couple things. Actually, this guy is too big. He should be probably three quarters of that size. First is the graphite stack itself and the core. Okay. The core is 11.8 meters across. The Fukushima, uh, the Fukushima core is 2.5 meters across. The core at Chernobyl is 7 meters tall. The Fukushima uh, uh, core is around 3.7. In other words, 40 of them, and there's going to be a little graphic here that shows that, um, can fit nicely into a, a Chernobyl core. The water, as I said, flows from below, up, and out. You have what's, what are called a lower biological shield and an upper biological shield. The upper biological shield, which weighs nominally around 1,900 tons, metric tons, was thrown, it's estimated, 10 to 12 meters into the air before toppling back down into the reactor shaft um, by, the, by the power of the, uh, by the energy of the steam. Um, below you have something similar. It's about one meter thick instead of two. It weighs approximately 1,000 metric tons. There's piping. There's a special kind of mineral in there. Um, this played an extremely important role uh, in the accident. Um, down here, you have what are called pressure di distribution headers. This is similar, the similar concept to what I showed uh, with the BWR. If there's what's called uh, an up to design basis accident, in other words, if, if four, up to four of these 1,693 channels for some reason break, the, the, uh, the steam escapes. If, you can, if it's only up to four, it gets channeled down again, the steam gets distributed, and there's two more floors below that for bubbler pools. Okay, so the same concept happens. Um, and here's, an, here's a rough size of the Fukushima core. This is a, what they literally call a skin. It's a three, a, a roughly a three-quarter inch thick steel skin around the reactor with, uh, with thermal compensation in it. It was never meant to withstand more than uh, roughly the four tubes that I talked about before. Any more it would have been history. There is no containment, uh, uh, sorry, no reactor pressure vessel. Um, I'm going to jump down because I've talked a lot uh, about this already. I'll show you some of the, uh, this is the beginning, uh, or uh, actually about two months into the construction of the, uh, what's called the sarcophagus over that building. What you can see here is what they call a northern cascade wall, where they, th where they first bulldozed as much of the debris into there. They threw all manner of anything that was lying around in the yard, and they shipped things in, threw it in there, and then finally covered it with concrete. Okay, so it's a very porous thing. The rest of it is not concrete at all. That's one of the bigger myths. It's better described as a, as a steel tent built upon ruins. If you build things upon ruins, there's no real good way to assess the structural uh, integrity of, the, uh, uh, of that building. And this is what I noted before. In Japan, they were using water. Here, they're pumping uh, concrete into these steps on the northern face uh, of the sarcophagus. That's the complete sarcophagus. Um, it is quite literally a tent. These are panels that were moved up. These are all panels that were just placed on top of girders that they lowered down. This they affectionately call the doghouse. Um, uh, so it is not a monolithic concrete 
thing that I just, you know, in these weeks since Fukushima, they were making those spurious comparisons and saying, for example, on the news, and I'm quoting to the best of my, um, best of my memory, uh, Chernobyl, uh, the Chernobyl sarcophagus is a massive concrete structure that has recently cracked and is releasing radiation. It's garbage. Okay. Um, this is looking down while the uh, while the Chernobyl was being constructed. You have what I was uh, what I was referring to before. This is the Northern Cascade Wall, one of those steps. You'll see things that are being have been thrown down in there. They're going to throw steel netting on top of that and then cover it with concrete. This was just covered. This is that 2,000 ton lid. Okay. It's at a whatever angle it is. And here is down inside about 7 to 10 meters is where the reactor shaft uh, is. It's not covered. What the helicopters dropped, uh, if you guys remember from the, uh, uh, from the films, is right here. They did a great job, but they didn't smother the core. The Soviets reported that they smothered the core. They did no such thing. Um, Here's, here's a closer-in picture. This is even further into the future. They're beginning to put some of those girders up. And you'll see there's no material here. No material. The material is off to the side here. Okay. Um, kind of a schematic for you. That's where a red glow was seen. The helicopter's pilots risked their lives. Some of them died. They did a fantastic job. They covered it. That pile remains to this day. This burned in the open. Um, and here's a, here's a side view uh, of what the current condition is. There, uh, just to give you a quick synopsis of what happened, um, from the beginning of the accident, well, the, the core was destroyed. Approximately 71% of the core remained in here. Other parts were spewed uh, out to the environment. Um, this lower biological shield, which I refer to, is exceedingly important in the, in the accident's development because it took roughly um, uh, seven and a half to eight days for the, uh, for the molten core to eat through this thing. Okay. As it was eating through it, its chemistry was beginning to get complicated. It was turning to molasses. Also, something else that was happening that helped to contribute to it stopping itself was something called the decay heat was decreasing. All reactors produce decay heat even after they're shut down. Um, first ferociously, and then it exponentially <coughs> dies away. So it was cooling. Its chemistry was being complicated. It finally dropped down through here flowed along the pressure distribution headers, the pressure suppression pool piping, and then froze and stopped releases. It stopped itself. There was no China syndrome. Okay. And I'll show that's that's how far the fuel flowed, roughly 35 meters away from the bottom uh, from the bottom of the reactor um, area. And this is a picture from those pressure distribution headers that I showed you of stalactites. This is frozen fuel. These are steel structures. This is a chain hanging from it. There's no damage to this stuff. This is another picture of a stalactite. This is a stalagmite, which they affectionately call the elephant's foot. Um, that's pretty much it. I mean, there's a lot, lot more than, than can, uh, that can be said here. Um, and I think I've got about 20, 25 minutes uh, for questions. Mm -hmm.
an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.